Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. So we're in the middle of a a series here at Trinity, if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, through the the prophet Isaiah. Rather than trying to go through the whole thing, what we're trying to do is dip into it and take the, the passages from it that best represent what the book is all about and try to get a good concrete perspective on it by choosing really representative passages. One of the ways we described our approach and really the way that Isaiah itself reads is almost like a surround sound system where you've got different speaker channels that are used to communicate different kinds of content. Just like in a surround sound system, you know, one channel might, might be for dialogue and another one might be for bullets that are flying all around you or whatever. So in Isaiah, there are different channels that come up all through the various chapters. And we're just trying to identify what those speakers are, what messages often come through it. So that when you read the book for yourself, you, you have some handles you can grab onto to understand it better. Where we started... The first and most important kind of message that comes through Isaiah is a message about God. And it's about the holiness of God. The fact that he is bigger and and far beyond all of the other categories that we might have for understanding things in this life. Way beyond any of the powers of this world that we fear. Way beyond the, the forces in this world that we can't control. God is beyond anything that we know. That he judges all who stand against him. That he must expose anything that isn't right. And yet that he is love. The kind of love that costs something. The kind of love that ultimately costs him his son. That's the picture of God that we've portrayed. He's not like us. He's not normal. It's just to say he's holy. Now the next channel that we want to identify, the next speaker, what's going to take the next four weeks for us in our study, is what Isaiah has to say about us, about humans, and all of our weakness and brokenness, our frailty and our sin. It comes as a message about Israel. And we're going to try to let that message land as it was given and not try to too quickly jump from Israel to ourselves. We want to really understand the message in its context. But I think what you're going to see each week is that the things Israel is accused of, the things that they're guilty of, their character, so to speak, sounds really, really familiar. That ultimately they struggled from the same things that that we struggle with. So by looking at Isaiah's pretty bleak picture of the human condition, we're going to set ourselves up to love the gospel more, to see Jesus more more clearly as the solution that all of us need. That's the idea. That means looking hard at some material that's not pleasant. We're going to start there today. Really, I think it's possible to summarize all of what Isaiah says about Israel's problem ultimately about our problem, under one category, the category of trust. It's a theme that runs all through Isaiah. The problem is that Israel was placing its trust in all the wrong things. Our different weeks in this portion of the series are going to be trying to pinpoint different misplaced trust objects. But where I wanted to start is with a story, a story near the beginning of the book that offers a sort of case study and what Israel was guilty of for hundreds of years, what ultimately led to their judgment. It's a story that comes at the beginning of Isaiah's most concrete section. What you might have noticed if you've been with us for the past few few Sundays is that a lot of Isaiah could have been written to anybody, anywhere. It's not really specific about the people that it's addressing. Um, In in fact, it kind of jumps back and forth 
between addressing the people who were alive when Isaiah was alive and looking ahead to hundreds of years later when, when people were going to come back from Babylon and God was going to send the Messiah. He jumps all over. But what we're going to look at today is one of the few passages in this book that's concrete and historical. It's a story drawn from Isaiah's time where Isaiah actually has to confront the king of Judah at the time with, who was faced with a crisis and, a, and a, a decision that would shape the life of his nation for the next hundreds of years. We're going to get some more context for the kinds of things we've been studying already by looking carefully at this story. It's a story that's found in Isaiah 7, verses 1 to 17. And what I want to do is pretty simple this morning. I just want to walk through the details of the story. I want to try to bring you into it, to try to, to almost put ourselves into that world understand it as it unfolds on its terms. And only then, only after we've come to a good, solid grasp of it, do we want to step back and confront the question that it poses to us, which is the same one that, that the characters in this story faced thousands of years ago. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you found the passage, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 7, Verses 1 to 17. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Assyria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let's go up to Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razan. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you look at your worship guide, you can see the building blocks of this story. I've highlighted them there for you. We're going to walk through them one at a time. I want to make sure you see the drama here and how it builds and ultimately gets resolved. The story starts with a crisis. The first verse gets straight to the point, sets the stage in an, in an economical and dramatic way. In the days of Ahaz, who was king over Judah, Syria and Israel rise up against them. Now, here's in, in a quick and efficient way what you need to know about the politics of the time where Israel and Judah le- uh, were located. You notice that he's talking about Judah and Israel separately. That's because about 200 years before this time, there had been a civil war in Israel. Usually we just use the word Israel to refer to all of God's people. And, and even at this time, they, that's still, it's still used in that way a lot. But about 200 years before Isaiah, the nation split. Ten tribes went to the north. A separate nation was created in the south just of two tribes around Jerusalem. During the time that Isaiah is writing, this whole region has become a sort of imperial checkerboard for the powers of the day. And the biggest power of the day, the bully in the neighborhood, was a nation called Assyria. It's it's an empire that you've probably read about if you have had a Western Civ class in college. It's one of the first empires the world has ever known. It was based in what's modern day Iraq, uh, out of the city of Nineveh, and and during this time, soon after this prophecy is written, they would have conquered that whole region, the whole region around the Mediterranean. At this point, it's still not set in stone yet that Assyria is going to be able to handle that kind of empire. There's still, there's still a chance, a narrow window, but a window nonetheless, for resisting them. And some of the smaller nations around Assyria see this as their opportunity and they claim it. In particular, Syria and Israel, both to the north of Judah where Isaiah lives, they decide that they're not going to let Syria push them around, that they're going to ally with the freedom fighters, so to speak, that they're going to try to force the issue and resist the bully before it's too late. Now they come against Judah. The time, the time that this was written was not a time when you could stay neutral. You know, there's no, there was no Switzerland. Right, this neutral power surrounded by warring powers. Every decision you made, one way or the other, was going to make somebody very angry with you. Judah was in a no man's land. It was one of the smallest nations around. They didn't have many resources. They certainly didn't have a powerful army, and they're surrounded by warring nations trying to be trying to force them to join their side. So when Ahaz decides to play coy, that he's not going to to join up with Israel and with Syria, they decide they're going to force him. They decide to invade Judah, to surround Jerusalem, and ultimately to try to depose King Ahaz and put on his place a guy who had more guts, a more hawkish king who'd be willing to join up with the guerrillas who were going to take on the, the big bully, Assyria. That's where verse 1 leaves us. Syria and Israel, also often called Ephraim, had come to war against Judah. When the king of Judah hears it, when the people hear word that they're coming, 
We're told that they shake with fear as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I can't imagine what it would be like to face an invasion like this one. An invasion that you can't resist. To be surrounded. Like your home, your livelihood, everything that's familiar to you. To be surrounded by troops that are too big for you to fight off. To know that there's, there's no escape. To know that in warfare as it was practiced back then, these battles were ugly. Women and children would die. People would be starved. That's what they faced. Think about this story. Read verse 1 as if these were real people. People like you. People with families. People with fears. And they were facing this kind of invasion. I can't imagine it because I've never felt threatened by a foreign army. But I do know what it's like to shake like a tree before the wind. Right? I do know what it's like to face crisis moments. When what I love or depend on, what I'm longing for, is threatened by forces that I can't control. All of us have felt that, right? To shake like a tree in the wind. That's where Judah found itself. That's where the word of the Lord comes to them through the prophet. In the moment of crisis, the word of God comes to Isaiah and through him to King Ahaz to clarify the choice, the options that Ahaz has in this scenario. The choice is whom to trust. Mistakes are life and death. That's the message that comes to him. The Lord sends Isaiah and his son out to meet the king. He's out somewhere off the washer's field highway. Don't you love the specific details that we get here? It's like saying to go down off Granny White Pike. You want to know where that's, where'd that come from? I mean, what's the story there? Who was Granny White? I want to know what this, what this washer's field was all about. I don't know. They knew. It was down by the washer's field highway. The king was out there inspecting the pool or the aqueduct. What it basically what he was doing is he was checking out his water supply because he knew a siege was coming. And the way that, in the, in the ancient times, the way you would bring a kingdom to its heels, or to, to, to its knees rather, the way you'd bring them to heel, is you would surround the city, you would cut off the supply of food and the supply of water, and you would wait on them to starve. So the king is out checking his water supply, wanting to see if there's anything they can do to defend it better, to make sure they had what they needed. That's where Isaiah finds him. The message that he's to deliver to this king who's scrambling to do everything he can to ward off the invasion is a simple message, as simple as it is counterintuitive. He tells him, basically, do nothing. Don't be afraid. Be quiet. I've got this. These would-be powers that have you shaking like a tree in the wind are nothing more than smoldering stumps They're fires that have already burned out in the last breath of their lives. I think it calls calls to mind those images for God we've already looked at in our series, especially in passages like Isaiah 40, of God before whom the nations and all of their power are, are just a drop in the bucket. They're like grasshoppers before him. They're like dust on a scale that you don't even take the time to wipe off because it just doesn't matter. It doesn't affect a thing. That's who these nations are. God tells them, so be quiet. Don't fear. Be at peace. 
you're worried about Raisin and Rimaliah's kid? Do you notice, I think it's intentional that he leaves out the name of Rimaliah's son, Israel's king. He's, like, he's not even significant enough to be named. He's like, you're afraid of Rimaliah's boy? That guy? You have the God of the universe on your side, so be quiet, be still. God makes him a promise here in verses 7 and following. A promise and a choice. The promise is that the plan that these nations have hatched is going to come to nothing. They are going to be shattered. It will not stand. That part is set in stone, right? There's no, there, there's no questioning this. One way or the other, Israel and Syria are going to be crushed. The only question is who Judah will trust. Verse 9 puts it really plainly. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The choice is this. Here's the options faced with this crisis. Trust in God and stand. Or trust some other power and collapse along with your enemies. You see that? Is that, is that clear? It's not, it's, the choice isn't trust in God and be delivered or don't trust in God and these enemies are going are to win. The enemies aren't going to win. God has already promised they're going to be crushed. The only question is how you're going to confront the crisis that you're in with trust in God or trusting some other foreign power. And if you trust in God, you will stand. If you trust some other power, some imposter power, some empty promise that some other nation might make you, you won't stand. You will fall. That's the choice. The issue is whether Ahaz, confronted by this threat from his close neighbors, will trust the promise and power of God or look to the power of Assyria, a sort of enemy of my enemy is my friend solution. Here's the way one Old Testament scholar put it. Here's the question Ahaz faced. Is the security of the Lord's people no different from that of nations to whom the Lord has not revealed himself or claimed as his own? Verses 10 to 12 report Ahaz's decision. The stakes are clear. God's given him a choice. And now he decides. His decision is fleshed out much more clearly in 2 Kings chapter 16. It elaborates on the story that Isaiah 7 tells us. Basically, God says to Ahaz, Ask of me a sign. It can be as high as the heavens. It can be as low as the place of the dead, Sheol. And I will give it to you to prove to you that I am worth your trust. Whatever you want. And Ahaz's answer sounds pious. He says, no, I, I, I don't want your sign. I don't need it. I, would, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Sounds pious. But it's a facade. See, demanding a sign would have been one thing. Demanding that God prove himself to you. Well, that, that is pretentious. That is untrusting. It is sinful. But here God is preemptively offering a sign. Offering to prove himself to Ahaz. And Ahaz says, no, I don't want your proof. Why? What's going on there? We've got to get this clear. Because this is the key to this story and it's the key to understanding ourselves and our, our perspective on trust in God. What, what often holds us back from trusting him in the way that we should. Got to get this point. What was Ahaz doing in refusing the sign? 
he was deciding that Assyria was better able to protect his interests or at least to protect them on his terms to give the sort of security that he wanted. I want to read to you a couple of verses from 2 Kings 16. We can insert these verses right here at this critical moment. Think about Ahaz refusing the sign that God offered him. He doesn't want to see anything that's going to make him trust in God. And now insert these verses, 7 to 9 from 2 Kings 16. Here's what happens. So, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Don't miss those words. Those are the words used to describe Israel throughout the Old Testament as it relates to God. Israel as God's servant. Israel as God's son to whom God has committed his own self in providing everything that they need. And now Ahaz says to this king of Assyria, I am your servant. I am your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Verse 8 says, Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. He took the possessions of the house of the Lord and he sent them as a gift to this king to buy his favor. Verse 9 says, the king of Assyria listened to him. Of course he did. What did he have to lose? He was being paid to defeat the, the people he wanted to defeat anyway. He was being asked into this other nation that could have joined the rebellion against him. The king of Assyria listened to him marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Razan. Here you see the, the promise the Lord made coming to pass. This conspiracy against Judah wasn't going to stand. But Ahaz had made a fateful choice. And here's the nature of his choice. Do not miss this. His choice was a statement about God and about himself. The statement about God that he made by trusting Assyria instead of the promise of the Lord is that God isn't actually holy. He had been told that God is not normal, that he has a power that's unmatched anywhere else, that his love is not like our love, that it is perfect and, and stops at nothing to protect those who trust in him. He's been promised that God is holy and he is rejecting the holiness of God. What he's saying is that God is normal. That God can't deliver. That he's not trustworthy. He's not unusually powerful, wise, and loving. He's saying that God isn't holy. Rejecting God's offer of a sign. But in that rejection, he's also saying something about himself. It's a statement about God. But he's also making a statement about himself. And here's what that statement is. I think what he's saying about himself is that he doesn't want to believe. It wasn't like he took the sign God offered him and then based on the evidence, I think I'm gonna, still going to go with the king of Assyria. He didn't even want God's sign. He doesn't want to believe that God can deliver. And I think what that shows about him and I think what sounds familiar to me and probably to you as well is that when we fail to trust in God, it's often because we don't want the kind of deliverance God promises to give to us. We don't want to believe that he is who he claims to be. What we want is a solution that's visible, that's controllable by us. Ahaz wanted a king that he knew and armies that he had seen and read about. He wanted, he wanted whatever his money could buy him. He wanted to be in control of the terms of his own salvation. 
It isn't simply that he didn't believe God was powerful and loving, but that he didn't want to. He preferred, as one has put it, a salvation by works to a salvation by faith. In response to Ahaz's choice, God gives him a promise. This is in verses 13 to 17 of our story. Ahaz's decision sealed his fate, and with him the fate of David's house as it had been known to this time. Now, the fate of David's house, and Ahaz in particular, it comes as a promise from God that's fulfilled on two levels, one immediate and one much longer term. To get into these verses is to get into the trickiest part of this passage. It's, it's hard to understand. It's a little bit unclear. There's some good people, really smart people, disagree about the meaning of these verses we're about to dive into. We can't dive into them too far this morning for the sake of time, but I think that there's enough clarity here. I want to talk about the two layers of this promise in verses 13 to 17. The first part is crystal clear. No, no disputing this part of the promise. That is, that God has been wearied by the unbelief of his people, verse 13 says, and he's not going to stand for it anymore. He's done. He has got to expose the emptiness of the other things his people are trusting. It's come to that. Verse 17 states it most clearly. Verse 17 says, The Lord is going to bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house, the house of David, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's a reference to the civil war I mentioned earlier, about 200 years before this happened. When, when, when that war happened, 10 of 12 tribes left Judah. So when he says something is going to happen that hasn't happened since the days of Ephraim, when five-sixths of the kingdom was cut off, what, what could be worse than losing five-sixths of your kingdom, of your sovereignty? Really, one thing could be worse, losing all of your sovereignty. What he's saying is that now your house is going to collapse, that you're going to be shipped off, that you're going to lose the land and the kingdom that had given you your identity. What's predicted, what actually happens, is that the power they latched onto for security turned on them. It owned them. It reduced them to no more than a puppet kingdom. And following Ahaz, there was no more king on David's throne that had anything resembling the authority that David and Solomon enjoyed. The house collapses here. They hold on for another hundred years plus, but they're just a puppet kingdom in the hands of Assyria. So here's the key point. The promise is this. When you sign up for some sort of security that you think you can control, for terms that you think you can set, for a deliverance that your resources can buy you, what you think you're controlling will end up controlling you. One, one image that I saw for this is that, that the king of Judah has grabbed the tiger by the tail. He's invited Assyria in to deliver him, but what he's also invited is the conquest of his kingdom. He's invited Assyria to come in and take control. So th- hoping to control his deliverance, he has now given himself over to bondage, to absolute bondage. That's the clear part of this promise. God will expose what you trust in that isn't him. He will show it for what it is and it will end up owning you. 
There's a less clear part of the promise, though. Verses 14 to 16 talk about this, this aspect of the promise. It's the promise of a child to come known as Emmanuel. Now, we, we immediately know this from Matthew's use of it to describe Jesus. That's how Matthew tells us why Jesus is important. He is the one Isaiah was talking about. He is God with us. Come now, in this time and in this place. But there's a lot of controversy about whether when Isaiah wrote this, he was also talking about someone in his own time. I mean, it seems, reading it, that those who would have heard him give these words would have expected a, a child to be born then, as a sign for this people at this time. So what is it about? Is it strictly a reference to Jesus that the first hearers just couldn't understand? Or is it something that they would see? And how, how, do, how do you understand this sign, especially if it's something they're going to be able to see in their time? Because God said that the sign was going to be something that moves heaven and earth. And now he's just saying that somebody's going to have a kid. How does, this, how does the sign match up to, the, to the, the weight that it was given earlier? There's a lot of complexity here. I think there's a range of options that are, that are okay in, in trying to interpret this. I just want to give you the one that I thought was the most compelling about what's going on in this promise of Emmanuel. It's the one uh, by a guy named Alec Motier and the commentary that I've recommended to you guys. He's the author of it. it there's, there's one back on the resource table still if you're interested. Here's what he thinks is going on in this Emmanuel promise. He believes that the, that the sign is a sign of judgment and of hope. Where it falls in the passage, you expect judgment. Because Ahaz has just refused the sign, and Isaiah is basically saying, God's going to give you one anyway, and you're not going to like it. This is the passage that ends with the verse we just read about, about God bringing on this people forces they can't control who are going to take over them. So Emmanuel seems to, to fall in this judgment section. And yet it also speaks of, of the promise that God will be with us. How is it judgment and, and promise? What Alec Motier says is that it's a promise that judgment is coming now, that the house of David as you have known it is going away, that the only thing that can restore this house is God himself coming to reign on this throne, that, that God himself coming will take hundreds of years, that when, what he'll find when he gets here is not the throne that David left, a throne of power and riches and glory, but he'll be eating curds and honey. It sounds like maybe a reference to plenty. It's not. It's a reference to the, 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 the best thing that you could get when there's not a lot of options. It's just the stuff that's sort of easily available for a people that's poor, that's oppressed for a throne that doesn't exist. That's what this, that's what this king will come into the world eating, curds and honey. He would be born in poverty and without a throne because Ahaz had given away the kingdom. There is no hope, in other words, for Ahaz and his generation. But embedded in this sign of judgment is a sign that one day God himself would come to set things to rights. I think we've got to read this Emmanuel verse in chapter 7 in light of other things in this section of the book. In chapter 9 and in chapter 11, both of those chapters promise a king to come. In particular, a child who would be born. That this child would be a prince of peace, but also a mighty God. It fits perfectly with the promise of God with us in chapter 7. That God himself was going to come and restore the house of David. That's what's being promised here, is that God is coming to fix what Ahaz had broken. He's coming to restore what Ahaz had given away. 
It's a promise that has relevance to Isaiah's time. The kingdom is going away. But it's a promise that ultimately looks to the future, to the kingdom restored, when the one who was meant to sit on that throne finally shows up. The promise then is judgment that shows the folly of trusting the powers of earth but a larger promise to respond to Israel's failure with an even greater proof of his trustworthiness. Don't miss this. It is a a word of judgment. Ahaz deciding not to trust God couldn't stand. It had to be exposed. But in that promise is also a promise that he's going to respond to Judah's failure by offering even more proof that he's trustworthy. The promise of a sign was a promise to, to, to show you that I'm good for it. What is it going to take to make you believe in me? Ahaz refuses it and is punished for it. Now God is saying, I'm still going to give you that sign. And here it is. I'm going to move heaven and earth to be with you. And that will prove to you that you can trust me. And this is the launching point, I think, for where we enter into the question Ahaz faced. Remember remember that line I read you about what the decision Ahaz faced really summed up to? The question is, Does the security of the Lord's people look any different than the security of those that he hasn't promised himself to? I think living on this side of the coming of Jesus, on Emmanuel, come to this world, we're faced with the same question, but with a a little different spin on it. Given that God has come to be with us, given that Emmanuel has come, Do we handle our lives, process our decisions, face our futures in any way that's different from those who don't believe that God has become our father, that our brother has come to us to bear our sorrows? Ultimately, remember the promise in verse 11 was that the sign would be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. This Emmanuel promise fits that description exactly. Because in Jesus, what we have is God dying, going to the place of the dead, entering into Sheol, and rising again as high as the heavens to prove to us that he is worthy of our trust. The question we face is, is this enough to cause us to trust him? It's the terms of Romans 8. If God be for us, if God be with us, if Emmanuel is true, then who can stand against us? It is Christ who died, that's Sheol. Christ who was raised, that's the heavens. Who will separate us from his love? This is tricky, I admit. Because on the one hand, You could look at what Ahaz was doing and say, you know, he was just using the resources that God had put into his world. Wasn't he just using common sense to try to save his people? Are we called to just throw up our hands, to not use our brains to let God do what he's going to do? Does this call to trust in God and do nothing mean we shouldn't use modern medicine, for example, but we should just wait on God to heal us? Does it mean that, that we shouldn't seek a paycheck or try to hold down a job? but just trust God to deliver and give us what we want? I mean, obviously, I think we know it doesn't mean that. So what are we called to? 
think it's a condition of the heart. We're not called to throw up our hands and do nothing. We're called to go about our lives with a posture of trust in him that knows that if God is actually with us and has gone to the place of the dead and has risen as high as the heavens, that there's nothing that can happen to us that will separate us from his love. He's worthy of our trust because he's proven it in Jesus. Jesus tells us everything we need to know about how God feels for us and about what he will do to preserve us. And with that knowledge comes a position of the heart, a quietness of soul that doesn't just check out and sit around and wait on God to act, but that acts in life without the fear that comes when you think that you're in control of your own destiny. Here's another way to come at it. Let me ask you a few questions. Questions that I think will help us identify if we, if we lack the trust that we're supposed to have in God. If we actually come at him more like Ahaz does than, than the way we should. Just think about these questions. Do you hesitate to pray because you don't think it'll work as well as actions that you can take on your own? Because you're not sure it'll work as well as what you can do? Do you find that you're often anxious about your future? About friends? About money? About grades? Do you find yourself feeling like nobody cares anything about you? Like you're guilty or condemned or unlovable? When your hopes get disappointed, when you fail to achieve some goal that you've set for yourself, are you crushed by that? Do you get defensive when you're accused of weakness? Do you find that you always have to be right? Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others? Do you find yourself tearing them down, at least in your own mind? Do you find yourself prone to complaining or to bitterness? Do you need to be in control of situations? Do you resist help from other people? Do you rest only on security that you can buy that's traceable in a bank account? If you answer yes to any of these questions, then what you've identified is a sign of misplaced trust. What you've identified is a sign of unbelief. I think often we just, we put doubt and unbelief into this philosophical box. Like it's doubting the existence of God because you're not sure you can prove that he's there. But far, too, far more often than that, we struggle with doubting that he is who he claims to be. It is a kind of doubting of his existence. Anytime you've answered, you have cause to answer yes to any of those questions, what you're seeing in yourself is an unbelief in God and who the Bible describes him to be. We want solutions and security that we can see and understand, that we can take credit for. We don't want the sign of Emmanuel, of God with us, because it's a sign that we can't control, that we can't buy. The call is to look at the bigness of God that Isaiah points us to so clearly then to look at the sign that this God who is holy and beyond anything else in this world is with us. He is for us. He has put on flesh, put skin in the game, literally, for us. And then to trust Him. Will you do it? Will you trust the promise of Emmanuel?
God, help us to trust because it doesn't come natural. We don't want to believe. Oftentimes we don't even recognize that that's true. So all we can pray for is that your spirit would give us the trust that we lack on our own. We want to see this sign of your trustworthiness. The sign that you've given to us in Jesus in his death and his resurrection. We want to believe that that is all we need to know about whether we can trust you. We want to stop demanding from you that you do things on our terms. We want to trust that your way is right even if it's not understandable. And this kind of trust is beyond our ability. So we pray, Father, for the glory of your name that you would help us to trust you. For Jesus' sake.